You are listening to content from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, you can find us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your kindness and your goodness. Father, we ask that you would, through your word and by your spirit, reveal yourself more fully to us this day. That we might be changed by you and be your presence in this world. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. It is a joy to be here I'm with you. If, again, if I haven't met some of you yet, my name is Ken, and it's been a really good weekend. I've been so encouraged by just the time that I've spent here, and like last night with the vestry, just, it was so encouraging to hear the conversations your leadership are having. Um, there's an imagination for the things that God is doing that um, is just really refreshing to see. I am very thankful for Jeremy. Um, I have great love and respect for him. Um, he is a scholar who loves Jesus and loves people well. And, and that, is, um, that is a wonderful gift. So we are going to be um, spending our time in the, the gospel reading in Luke 20. Now, just to put what we have here in context, this is after Jesus had already done the triumphal entry. This is after he had already uh, cleansed the temple. And so the religious rulers are a little bit upset with him right now. Um, he has certainly shaken up the status quo. And so they begin by, early in this chapter, see they question his authority. And then they send spies to try to trap him by asking uh, what would seem to be an impossible question. And now the Sadducees, who were basically the wealthy, ruling, religious elite of that time, uh, they come to question Jesus. Now, again, if you heard, it, it said that the Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. So when they pose this question to Jesus, it's not like out of a genuine curiosity, like, what happens in this case, right? Because right, they don't believe there's a resurrection. So they are, they are at the least trying to trap Jesus again, and, and probably also trying to show why they think the resurrection is, is ludicrous, why it is silly. So they pose a dilemma. And this dilemma actually goes back to the law, and the law was actually designed to ensure that there'd be a continuation of a family name that there would be a continuation of an inheritance, that there would also be a protection for a widow because they were very vulnerable in that time. So the problem is a man marries a widow. Before they have any kids, he dies. So following the Leverite law, then the brother comes and marries her. And again, that was to ensure that the family name would continue, the inheritance would continue, and that the widow would be protected. But before she could have a kid, he dies and so on and so forth, all seven. I don't know about you, but if I were number seven, I'd be having some serious questions at this point. <laughs> so uh, he dies also, then the woman dies, and the Sadducees say, now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Now, I want you to notice that um, this is one of the times where Jesus doesn't answer their question with another question. He often would do that. Uh, but, but I think part of that is that within the week, Jesus himself will be resurrected. And that the resurrection is central to the Christian life and hope. That this life is not the end. Right? That we are heading to a new creation where there is no more evil, there is no more sin, or sorrow, or suffering, or shame, or sickness, or guilt. 
The Sadducees didn't believe there was a resurrection. So, so Jesus actually, at the end of our reading, the Sadducees only believed the books of Moses. The first five books of the Bible were authoritative. So he goes to the second book. He goes to Exodus and uses a story from there of the burning bush to show that actually there was a resurrection, right? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. But I want to focus in a little bit more on what he says before that. Verse 34, Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. The first thing I want to say is that that actually what you find here is Jesus is affirming marriage. That this is the order of things in this age. Uh, It's actually the order of things that were set at creation. Uh, Even before the fall, you see in Genesis 2.24, right, that a For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united with his wife, and become one flesh. Now, to understand something of this was the order of creation, there are a couple of pieces, I think, that we need to put into place. This also helps us understand the the picture that marriage was supposed to be. Um, When you look in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27 and 28, it is very clear that both male and female are made in the image of God. Both were then given the charge of of being God's presence, God's glory within creation. That's what it is to be his image, right? You are his presence, his glory in creation. The command that they were given to be fruitful and multiply, to rule and subdue, was actually given to both, uh, equally given to both. When we see, for example, that, that, um, that there was not a suitable helper for Adam so, so that the woman is created, we need to understand that the word helper is not something that shows an inferior uh, person. Because the person who's actually called the helper the most in Scripture is God. Right? He is our helper. And that literally means one who does from us for us what we cannot do ourselves. So when God is our helper, it's not that he gives us an assist to get us over the hump to do something. No, he does something for us that we are completely unable to do for ourselves. As we see that this was the order of creation and that we are in this age. And in this age, we are given to uh, people who marry and are given in marriage. But we get a glimpse of the new creation, verse 35. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Will neither marry nor be given in marriage. What will be is different from what is now. We have this age. We have the age to come. Now, um, my wife reads this and she's like, this, I don't think I like this, right? And I can say the same thing. Right? If you have a good, strong marriage, you're like, wait a minute. I, I thought heaven was supposed to be a, a benefit, not loss. But we need to understand a few things. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, the marriage relationship was given as a picture of God's relationship with his people. It was meant to show God's care for, his love for, his protection, his provision, his faithfulness, his delight in, and his devotion to his bride, to us. When that picture is not necessary because we're living in the fullness of it, there's no need for that picture to be. Right? In the age to come, we will be living in the fullness of what will be. But what I can also say is that if we're living in that fullness, then there is actually more joy and more life for those who are married and for those who are single in the new creation than we can even begin to imagine now. 
that there is something of this life after the resurrection takes place within a transformed community where there is no sin, where there is no selfishness, and that the quality and purity of our relationships will exceed anything that we can ask for or imagine. So it's not that, that when we are participating in the age to come that we don't know each other. It's not that we don't love each other. It's not that what has been in the past no longer informs what is true now. It's not that the resurrection erases relationships. But we can say is that what will be will be better than anything that we have uh, imagined or can experience now. Verse 36, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. This is, again, revealing something fundamental about the resurrection. It doesn't say they won't die, right? They can no longer die. It is not even possible that life will so define us that death is actually not possible. There is no death in the new creation. We know that death is gone, that Jesus' victory over death will be fully realized in the new creation. Now, when it says that they will be like angels, please know this does not mean that when we die, we become angels. Right? That, when people say, oh, this person died, now they're an angel in heaven, that actually is a demotion. It is. When you look at Psalm 8, it says that we were made a little bit lower than God. 2 Corinthians 6 says, do you not know we will judge the angels? And you look in Hebrews, and it says, are not angels ministering spirits sent to serve us? When it says that we will be like angels, it is simply saying that angels are immortal, and we also will be immortal. We will share that with them, that we can no longer die. It's not that we become angels, but that we are those who can no longer die. And then he says this, for they are God's children, and children of the resurrection. Now, before I dive fully into this, I want to actually go back to a part that I skipped in verse 35, because this... Um, This is where this becomes important. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead, not all will take part in the age to come. What you find here is that not all are actually considered worthy. So the question is, what does it mean to be worthy to participate in the age to come and into the, into the resurrection? Jesus doesn't answer that here, but he just says that, that not all will be worthy, right? That only those who are considered worthy can participate in the age to come. So how do we become worthy? The first thing I want to do is that we need to separate the concept of being worthy from the concept of having worth. Everybody you meet has a tremendous amount of worth, right? There there is something that that we bear, something of the image of God, right? We were created as His glory and presence, and certainly in our rebellion, that image of God becomes distorted by sin, but there's still something of it there, right? We all bear something of the glory of the image of God, which means that everybody you meet has tremendous worth. We have a tremendous worth. It's just that that worth is actually held captive by sin. You find things like this um, in Psalm 49, verses 7 and 8. It says, No one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him. The ransom for life is too costly. No payment is ever enough. If we were without worth, then any payment would be enough. 
right? That there is such tremendous worth that we carry as those who are image bearers, even though it's marred by sin, that no payment is actually ever enough. Or consider what Jesus says in Luke 9 and verse 25. He says, what does it gain you if you gain the whole world and yet lose your soul? If you think about that, think of it as an equation. On one side is, is all the world and all of its glory and power and beauty and, and strength. And the other side is you, which is worth more. Jesus is saying you are. Right? If you lose yourself and gain all of this, you have lost. Right? The, 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 the soul of a person is worth more than all of what creation is. Or think of it this way. If we had very little worth or no worth, the blood of sheep would be enough to rescue us. This is why Hebrews 10 says that, that the blood of sheep actually isn't enough to rescue us. It takes the blood of Jesus, the Son of God. See, all you meet, everybody has a great worth. And what that means, if we understand that, is that we have to be those who cultivate eyes that see people differently. Because we live in a world that assigns value based on different things. Right? And some people have more worth, some people have less worth. Might be based on politics, what nation you're from, whatever. Right? We live in a world that assigns value. And the biblical truth is that everybody you meet carries something of the image of God. Everybody you meet has a tremendous worth. And in one sense, the, the role of the church is to call that forth. Right? That everybody carries something of the glory of the image of God. And our role is to see that glory drawn forth. That what was lost in our rebellion can be regained by the work of Jesus applied into their lives. We are those who don't sit in condemnation and fear and judgment of others. We are those who try to call forth their glory. We see their worth. We honor them. We treat them with a, a curiosity and a kindness. We understand that everybody we meet is either a son or daughter of the King of Kings or a potential son or daughter of the King of Kings. It changes everything about how we interact with the world. It changes everything with how we can seek to be a blessing and a presence. So even though we all have a great worth, not all are worthy. It's meant to separate the concept of worth and being worthy. Now to understand what it is to be worthy, we can go to actually the end of, of the section you read from Luke 19 last week where it says that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He does not say that the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who were worthy of being sought and saved. Right? To seek and save the lost. Now that, that echoes again what you find in, in Luke 15. When you, when you look at the, all the stories, maybe look specifically at the, the parable of the lost sheep. Right? You have a shepherd who's got a hundred sheep and he loses one. When you look at some parables and some stories, sometimes... It's not just noticing what happens, it's noticing what doesn't happen that is important. Maybe it's noticing what, like, I would do that doesn't happen. Maybe I can say it that way. So, if you notice in that story, um, this is what the shepherd didn't do. He didn't say, I can't believe it. Dumb sheep wandered off again. I knew this would happen. That sheep has been trouble from the beginning. Good riddance, I'm done. He doesn't deserve to be part of this flock. Notice that the shepherd 
He also doesn't say, listen, I told that sheep not to wander off. I gave it clear instructions. It got itself into this mess. It can get itself out. Let it find its own way home. The shepherd goes and pursues. He goes and pursues because the sheep is lost. We have a father who pursues us. He doesn't expect us to find ourselves. If you're lost, you can't find yourself. Right? It's the definition. We are those who are lost. We need to be rescued. And this is what the shepherd does. He, he pursues, he finds, he rescues. And when he finds the sheep, again, notice what doesn't happen. He doesn't scold the sheep. You just wait till we get home and your father's going to deal with you. Right? He doesn't scold the sheep. He doesn't express frustration. He doesn't come with anger. He doesn't express, I am so disappointed in you, wandering off again. He doesn't shame the sheep. What does he do? He joyfully picks up the sheep and brings it home. And then he celebrates, right? This rescue of this sheep, it's actually, it's worth a celebration. This is part of what this table is to remind us of, to orient us to every week, that that your rescue is worth a joyful celebration. This is that picture of the, the wedding supper of the land that we are rescued into, which means that you are worth a joyful celebration. And then Jesus says this at the end of that parable, that there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous who do not need to repent. Let me just ask you a really simple question. What did the sheep do to repent? Nothing. The sheep was found. This is the grace of God, right? That the Father pursues us before we repent, that that He rescues us. Uh, This is is the wonder of the gospel, that it's not that we repent in order to bring the Father near to us, to get on His good side. It's that the Father's pursuit and rescue is what brings us to repentance. It's a response to the love of God coming in meaning. It's the same thing you find in the prodigal son because actually the moment of repentance in that story is when the father runs in love to meet him. Before that, he's scheming. How can I get back in my father's good graces and have my needs met? It's when the father runs undignified with love to meet him that you see actual repentance comes. See, our repentance is necessary. But it is not something we do to get on good side, God's good side that he smiles upon us. It is our response to his love that pursues us while we are those who are wandering off. Right? It is his rescue of us. So in other words, we aren't worthy because of what we do. We are worthy because of what he has done for us. So what you see in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. Right? This is the glory of the gospel, that our being worthy doesn't depend on us, it depends on Jesus. It depends on what he has done to rescue us. And this, again, is why you have this piece of saying that that they are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. Now, there are a couple pieces of that, but the first is is that actually this speaks to a relationship. You become children of God. You're not those who do good things and therefore God employs you. You become children of God. This speaks to a relationship. And I don't know about you, but I wasn't consulted when I was born. It was not my decision. 
being born is something that happens to you. Uh, just like when you are dead in your sins, you can't bring yourself to life. This is His work. He is the one that, that brings us to life, that we are united to Christ, that we are then set free from the dominion of darkness. We're no longer under the authority of sin or death or Satan. Our identity is changed from being the enemies of God, those who are defined by sin and shame and guilt, those who deserve nothing but the wrath of God, to being the beloved children of God that we become the righteousness of God, that we are those that he delights in, that our identity goes from shame to glory, it goes from death to life, it goes from empty and grasping to filled and able to rest. Because they are children of God, he says. If you have been rescued, then you are a child of God. And that is something that cannot be taken away. That's a piece of saying they are also children of the resurrection. Did you catch that? They are God's children and children of the resurrection, which has not yet happened. In other words, if you have been rescued, if you've made a child of God, you will be a child of the resurrection. What God began, he will bring to completion. Right? We can't be snatched out of the Father's hands. That this is what actually enables us to be a people of hope in a world that is marked by hopelessness. Again, this is not dependent on us doing it right. This is dependent on the work of the cross, the work of Jesus being applied into our lives by God the Holy Spirit. His work cannot be undone. This is how we can be a people of hope. This is why Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. He didn't say, it is mostly done, don't blow it, I gave you a good start. This is the finished work of the cross applied into our lives. If you are children of God, you will be children of the resurrection. And that is because our identity changes and it doesn't depend on us, it depends on Jesus. Which means that if you've been made a child of God, you are fully a child of God. You will never be more a child of God than you are right now. If you were loved by God, you are fully loved by God. You will never be more loved by God than you are right now. We will grow in our experience of it, absolutely. There are things that, that that's part of the process of discipleship, of, of sanctification, is learning and living into those truths of the lies of the enemy be, being taken away. If you have been rescued by Jesus, you are fully a child of God and you are fully loved by God. The world can't see it. The devil will deny it, and our flesh will doubt it, all with the point of us forgetting who we are so that we live our lives in this world as those who are grasping, striving, and tentative instead of living with a confidence and unashamed, right? Secure in the hope that we have in the work of Jesus applied into our lives. That there is a confidence and a hope that is actually meant to define us. This is part of why the resurrection is central to the faith. It's not just that there's a hope of something out there, right? That, that biblically hope always has a present experience, a future fulfillment and a present experience. So we certainly, we get a glimpse of the new creation that we know that, that the, or the age to come, it's going to be different. It's going to be more glorious than we can even imagine. But we also get a picture of who we are now if we've been rescued. You're worthy of the age to come. 
not because of what you do, but because of what Jesus has done for you. That you are now a child of God, a beloved child of God, which means you will be a child of the resurrection. The more we know that, the more that our lives aren't marked by striving for what we already have. We are so often striving to be seen, to be affirmed, to have meaning and purpose and value when we actually already have it in Jesus. If we don't know it, then we spend our lives striving for what we already have and we can never catch it because it is beyond our ability to achieve. It is only what the Father gives us. A place of knowing that we are the beloved children of God, that he does not tolerate us, he does not put up with us, that he delights in us. The more that we know that, the less self-conscious we can be. The less self-conscious we can be, the more that we are set free to see the worth of everybody we meet. The more that we are set free to, to try to call people to stand into the glory of who God has for them to be. To be a church that actually is about calling people to this table that they know that they belong. And that there is a life and a glory that the Father has for them. It's that place of, of being oriented by hope. That we would stand in this hope that enables us to be a kingdom presence not shaped by grasping, not shaped by, by striving for things that are actually already ours, not living a life motivated by what can I get, but instead motivated by what is it that I can give to bring God's kingdom into somebody's life. How can I show this curiosity, this kindness? How can I call forth this glory? Father, give me eyes to stand in who I am that I can then also see others for who you have them to be. We're coming now to confirmation. And confirmation is an ordination service. Confirmation is actually not about those being confirmed, confirming what they believe. This is actually about what God is confirming in them. So what we're praying for, for them and actually for all of us, is that he would confirm in us more fully that we are the children of God and therefore we are the children of the resurrection. That we would be shaped by hope, that we would know that, that we are beloved by God, that we would be those who then have the ability to see the worth of others and call forth that worth. That we could be those who are shaped by hope in a world that is marked by hopelessness, that actually through us as his body, we would see lost sheep brought home. That we'd see prodigal sons and daughters come home and be welcomed at this table. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God of hope. That's not just a future reality. There's a present experience of that hope this day. Father, we know that, that if we have been rescued, if the work of Jesus has been applied into our lives by God, the Holy Spirit, we are children of God. We are those who are worthy and we will therefore be children of the resurrection. That we will be ushered into that new age. So Father, would you shape us in that hope that we would be secure in who we are in you. That in that security we can reach out to others. That in all of our interactions with others, we can see their worth, call forth their glory, see how to bless and encourage them. That they might see you, Jesus, be rescued, 
and come home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This sermon is an audio ministry from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you are in the area and would like to learn more about how you can worship with us in person or online, please visit us on the web at www.christourhopeanglican.org.